Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm doing alright. I'm getting over basically like a solid week of being sick, pretty much. I'm just starting to feel myself again. How are you doing, Sarah? Keeping on, keeping on. Have we mentioned uh, that you're going to be performing live at the King Eddie on the show? No. So if you listen to the show regularly, you know that Sarah is an electronic music artist under the handle Stegoceras, and you can find her music at stegoceras.bandcamp.com. And she did some music for our Patreon back in October, and she's going to be performing live as an opening act at uh, the King Edward Hotel, which is like not really a hotel anymore. It's an older... It's a historic site it's a hist- in Calgary. Yeah, but I mean, the reason it's a historic site is it has this long-standing tradition as a music venue, uh, traditionally with blues, and so it's kind of really like a big deal if you're a Calgary musician and you get asked to play there just because it's this, like, storied location. Yeah. It's really I'll, exciting. I'll be opening for Joyful Talk, and that will be early May. Yeah, May, May what? May 4th? May the fourth be with you, Sarah. Oh my god. I didn't even realize this. That changes everything, Ben. <laughs> and then on top of that, you're also going to be speaking at Pod Summit. I sure am. Pod Summit is a podcast conference thing that um, it's in its third year. Uh, it's gone back and forth between being in Calgary, in Edmonton, and now in Calgary again. And I will be one of the speakers talking about what to do when your podcast has hit a slump. Has our podcast hit a slump, (laughs) Sarah? No. But if it ever did, I would know what to do about it. Gotcha. And when when are you speaking? It'll be on June 22nd at Fort Calgary. Basically, if you're in Calgary slash Alberta, these events are for you. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I just wanted to give people plenty of time to book their plane trips to come see you <laughs> from all the... Book accommodations. That's right. <laughs> Sleep and party at the King Edward Hotel. That's right. Uh, the other bit of news we have at the top of the show here is we have a new supporter on our Patreon. So we would like to give a thank you to Nicholas Harold. Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, And you can join Nicholas in becoming a supporter of Scream Scene by heading to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You too can join Nicholas on the nice kid list for Scream Scene's good kid, bad kid, naughty list. Why are we making a naughty or nice list joke? Because his name is Nicholas. Oh, okay. Nick. Gotcha, gotcha. I wasn't connecting the dots the way you are there. That's okay. Well, I'm sure Jolly Nicholas will have, because I'm sure it's not the first time he's heard this type of joke. Thanks so much, Nicholas. What are we watching today, Ben? I know we're, we're going way, way back in time. Yes, it's another one of our retrospective episodes, and I wanted to... That has, like, a feeling of class about it. (laughs) Right. Uh, I wanted to address something about these off the top of the show just to make clear, I guess, the rules 
here at Castle Scream scene. So our effort here is to review every horror movie ever made in chronological order. And then rank them from best to worst. Right. We do sometimes skip movies. It happens. And it usually happens for one of two reasons. Either we can't dig up a copy of the movie anywhere. Like, if we can't access the movie to watch it, we aren't going to do an episode on it. And the second reason, which is occasionally related, is we can't find a copy we can understand. Mm -hmm. So if it's a foreign film and we can't find a version with subtitles, for instance, like we aren't going to watch the movie without knowing what's going on and try to talk about it, because that's not really fair. I mean, we've done things as bare minimum as watch movies with auto-translated Google Translate YouTube closed captioning, which is really close to not having subtitles, but is enough we feel we're giving the movie at least some kind of fair shake. Um, So there are occasions where we willfully skip movies. And then if a copy does turn up or subtitled versions do turn up, we go back and do these retrospective episodes. And that's happened uh, a few times now with a a few movies. Um, There are also times where we skip movies because after doing some research about them, finding some context about them, we decide that these are not horror movies. Sometimes that doesn't happen early enough in the process and a whole episode gets made anyways. Um, (laughs) Now today... We're doing one of these retrospective uh, episodes, and it is on a foreign film. Um, And it is on a foreign film that doesn't have subtitles and will be difficult for us to understand, but that's a whole other ball of wax. You just set up the rules, and now we're breaking them. Right. Well, listen, this it's a silent movie, so... Okay. But um, this wasn't one that we sort of willfully skipped at the time. I'd never heard of this movie until listener Laura Baptista contacted us and alerted us to its existence. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for keeping us on our toes. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, I'm really glad to have heard of this movie. It sounds really cool. And today's movie is from 1926. It is Kuruta Ichipeji, or A Page of Madness, uh, from Japan. Um, This is our first Japanese movie, whether retrospective or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Most pre-World War II Japanese film is lost, which is one of the reasons why I wasn't suspicious that we hadn't run into a Japanese movie before now. And the reason most pre-World War II Japanese film is lost is primarily due to the extensive firebombing of Tokyo during World War II. Uh, Japanese silent film is especially rare uh, to find. Coming out in 1926 puts us in between the release of The Bat and The Magician, if you want to sort of set your mind back to that point in horror films development where it wasn't really a genre in America yet and the uh, sort of overriding form of expression was German Expressionism. Uh, We'd had, obviously, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but also films like uh, Hands of Orlac Mm -hmm. as well by this time. And it's interesting that it's coming between The Bat and The Magician because... The Bat is kind of a horror comedy mystery thing that's adapting a play into a a film, but it's very American. And then The Magician is like, the crew is a mix of Americans and, I guess, Europeans. It's like filmed and set in France. And we also get a few tropes kind of established, or at least visual tropes established in The Magician. That's right. It's interesting that it came in this way. Yeah. 1926 also saw the release of the first remake of Student of Prague. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, just sort of that's that's the the milieu we have to judge this movie against, I guess. You know, um, put back on our mid twenties silent film horror is in its infancy kind of caps. You know. Yeah, it would not be fair to compare this film to Cat People. Right. So the story of the film. Uh, begins with its director, uh, Tenosuke Kinagasa. Born in 1896, Kinagasa began his career as an onagata, uh, which is a male actor who plays female roles. Now, this practice dates from traditional kabuki theater uh, from 1629, when the use of female actresses in kabuki was outlawed due to the frequent prostitution of female actresses, as well as just frequent problems with audience members uh, getting into, like, fights over trying to win the affections of female stars. In 1642, Onagata were actually forbidden themselves uh, because this trend of audiences trying to win the affection of these uh, performers continued, even when they were played by men. Um, (laughs) Did the audience members know? Yes, Um, However, uh, the forbidding of Onagata resulted in plays that had only male characters, which then led to many plays to have homosexual content, (laughs) which then led to the ban on Onagata being lifted in 1644. Um, However, after the ban was lifted, the Onagata were no longer allowed to have female hairstyles. They had to keep, like, a masculine appearance playing female roles, and they would wear these purple scarves as a visual signifier that their character was female. Um, it's interesting that it's purple because in Victorian England, a woman giving a violet to another woman was like a way to like code yourself as a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Now, use of Onagata continued into the early era of Japanese film. Uh, so early, early Japanese films uh, also did not use actresses. But Western influences... Um, that were becoming more prevalent in a Japanese society in the 1910s and 1920s, uh, contributed to the rise of the style called modern realism, or Shingeki, uh, realistic Western-influenced theater that had strong leftist radical themes, uh, and this became very popular in Japan, and Shingeki came to film in the early 1920s, and this led to the use of female actresses for female roles because of the way that Shingeki um, emphasized realism. In 1922, uh, the Onagata staged a protest against the use of female actors due to this resulting in a loss of work for Onagata. I suppose. I mean, they could just begin playing male characters. In Kabuki, uh, you know, it's a very specialized style. Yeah. And I think... You know, the Onagata, it was a very specialized, I guess, like, subcraft of acting to the point where, like, this is what I'm good at. Like, this is what Mm -hmm. I do. This is my skill, right? I'm an Onagata. I don't play male roles because that's not what I've been specifically, like, trained to do, right? Sure. So these protests didn't really lead to anything. Japanese film still uses female actresses to today. Uh, However, Kabuki remains largely all male even to today. Uh, There are some female kabuki troops, but for the most part, it's still an all-male media. Now, with the loss of work for Onagata, Tenosuke Kinagasa switched from acting to directing. He worked for three years for Shozo Makino at Makino Productions before deciding to go solo. He bought a movie camera 
and built a developing lab in his basement and decided he was going to make his own movie. Real uh, independent filmmaker here. Exactly. Wow. So, uh, to help him, he approached members of the new Impressionist Shinkankaku movement for help with developing the story. So, Sarah, I know you've got some information for us on the Shinkankaku movement. Yeah. So, the Shinkankaku movement, um, or if you want to just say, you know, the thing movement, Shinkankakua, um, at its core is basically Japan's modernist period, and it's a literary movement. Okay. So it's interesting that he approached them for film. But to kind of give context about Shinkankakua, I need to give a little bit of history about Japan and, like, its literary and cultural traditions so we know what Shinkankakua is reacting to. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would be happy if you would enlighten us. <laughs> so I'm not going to go back too far, only to about 1603. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And listen, I had to go back to the 1620s to explain Onagata, so yeah, we're all good. for sure. Um, so between 1603 and 1868, which is a period of around 260 years, is known as the Edo period. And this time, Japan is very isolationist. Um, it has a very strict yet elaborate social structure. And what's kind of most interesting and kind of most characteristic of the Edo period is that there's no individual rights. You only have the rights of your family. Mm. As far as cultural and literary themes, um, everything was very focused on the natural world. And that's for art and science. So that's the natural sciences, physics, engineering, astronomy. Philosophy at the time was focused around Neo-Confucianism with rationalism, humanism. Um, so things that are very, you know, focused on reason and what I can see. Yeah, the natural world. Yes. So that's the predominant thought and cultural and literary trends for about 300 years during this entire time of a very isolationist Japan. Yeah, when you say very isolationist, you don't mean like Trump America isolationism where like, oh, we have a travel ban. Like Japan basically cut itself off from the rest of the world for like, you know, this nearly 300 year period. Yes. Yeah. That all kind of changed in the Meiji period, which uh, was from 1868 to 1912. And that's when, to oversimplify things, the borders opened mm -hmm. and uh, Western influence came in and was increasing, um, as well as a push for creating a modern industrialized Japan. So in this period and kind of continuing into the next period, the Taisho period, up until 1926, um, we have lots of industrialization, education reform, and just more and more focus on the natural sciences. Now, of course, I'm summar summarizing, like, over 300 years in a quick, like, little blip mm -hmm. of, on a podcast. Um, there's a lot more intricacies here. But by and large, this was the philosophies that Shinkan Kakua was reacting to. Mm -hmm. These themes of rational thought, industrialization, kind of came to a head due to the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. Um, and I won't go into details about this earthquake, but holy shit, 
this, it was like the fucking apocalypse. So everything is destroyed, especially around Tokyo. Yeah. But that means it's a great opportunity to kind of build from scratch, start everything new, and really bring in new technology like subways, the radio, and the like. Yeah, they could basically build Tokyo from the ground up as a modern city. Yes. Yeah. And at its core, like, this is all happening right around Tokyo. And that is where Shinkankakua originates. So Shinkankakua, like I said, at its core, it's a modernist period. And it's described as, quote, the direct intuitive sensation of subjectivity that peels away the naturalized exterior aspects and leaps into the thing itself, end quote. So you might be thinking, Sarah, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) Um, Because like a lot of literary movements, regardless of where they're from, they have a hard time describing themselves. Sure, at least without using a lot of jargon. Yeah. Shinkankakua is a reaction and challenge to the old school Japanese literary traditions of naturalism, realism, um, and also... I think a little randomly in here, um, against communist proletarian literature. I think that makes sense if you remember what I was talking about with Shingeki being this um, Western realism movement that had come in, but that had these strong leftist leanings. So if you're trying to say, you know, we're rejecting the old school way of doing things, but we're also rejecting the Western way of doing things, but for whatever reason, the Western way had gotten, like, wrapped up with leftism, uh, in Japan, like, it makes sense then that it's, like, anti-that as well. Yeah. What makes this even a little further complex is, um, Shinkakua is very influenced by the Western movements of Cubism, Dadaism, and Modernism. Right. Um, and you can kind of, like, sum it up in very probably misleading way of saying art for art's sake. Right. And the way that Shinkankakua does that is to focus on feelings. Okay. And when I say you focus on feelings, it's an expression of emotion for the sake of sharing and emoting those feelings. Okay. So a common like term for this is lyricism. Mm. And that's, that's really common here. So Shinkankakua would be like very popular with fans of like Adventure Time or Steven Universe who like to post about how they have all the feels. No. Okay. Because those are happy feels, Ben. Oh, I see. The start of Shinkankakua can be seen uh, with the start of a new literary journal titled Bungei Jidai, which translates to the artistic age, loosely translates. And this journal was started in 1924 by Ryichi Yokomitsu and Yasunari Kawabata. Um, and these are two writers, because it's a literary movement. Right. Ryichi Yokomitsu, he lived from 1898 to 1947, and his writing is kind of characterized with the phrase sensual impressions. Hmm. Some of his most well-known works are Atama Narabi Nihara, Heads and Bellies, in 1924. Um, and that was actually published in the very first edition of The Artistic Age, Bungai Jirai. And in um, 1926, the year that this movie came out, he published 
Haru wa basha ni note, which translates to Spring came on a horse-drawn cart, which he wrote as a way of dealing with his wife's fatal illness. Hmm. And honestly, it seems like Shinkan Kakua started really with Yoko Mitsu, but because he died in 1947, his works aren't as well known as the movement's co-founder, Yasunari Kawabata. Um, Kawabata lived from 1899 to 1972, and a lot of his work can kind of be summarized with the idea of him wanting to beautify death um, and seek harmony between the tension of, like, life and death. Mm. Um, and so this is kind of where you see a bit more of the darker side of this movement. So it's not just Adventure Time, Steven Universe, feel your feelings. It's, you know, life is sad and depressing, but there's some th- something a little beautiful in that. Right. So Peter S. Beagle would like this movement. Possibly. Okay. Some of Kawabata's biggest and most well-known pieces of work is uh, in 1926, he wrote Itsu no Odoriko, which translates to The Dancing Girl of Itsu. Um, and that's a short story that is like has been performed millions and millions of times as a play and is still like quite popular today. And then his most well-known novel is Yuki Guni, which translates to Snow Country, and that won the Nobel Prize in 1968 for literature. Mm-hmm. So Kawabata is kind of a big deal in Japan, um, and he was one of the co-founders of this movement. So that's Shinkan Kakua. It's very much a literary tradition, so it's not as, you know, when, when I talked about German Expressionism, that made a lot more sense for a jump into film, because that's a theater movement which had branches into literature, art, things like that, but... Shinkan Kakua really only stayed as a literature, except for this film. Hmm. So in Japan at the time, um, there was a lot of competing critical forces around Japanese film. There was sort of Japanese nativism in terms of like adapting Japanese stories in a Japanese style versus like Western influence. Mm. And the thing to understand about Japan, especially in this period, is you know how... um, in the West, like here in North America, there's a tendency to, uh, I'll say, like, fetishize, like, Asian culture, right? Like, you meet people who are, like, really into Japan or really into China, you know, and and this is not a new idea, right? Like, from the Victorian period onwards, like, Orientalism has been this thing where people, like, oh, you know, hold up the East on a pedestal kind of thing. So something to understand is that Japan does that to us, in reverse, especially during this early uh, period where they had opened their borders. You know, the Western influences came in, like, partially because of Western imperialism, blah, 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 but also just because, like, Japan thought it all looked really cool, and they wanted to be cool. There was this idea that, you know, should Japanese film be more Japanese, or should it be more Western? At the time, domestic Japanese film was very literary-based. It was either adapting kabuki plays or adapting, like, existing novels. Um, It was really based in the literary tradition. But a lot of Japanese film critics were trying to push for Japanese film to become its own thing and become more purely cinematic and relying more on, like, the language of cinema than the language of theater or novels. So I say all this to provide sort of a basis on why 
Kinugasa would go to the Shinkankaku movement for assistance in creating a story for this independent film he was going to make. Now, Kinugasa wanted to base his story around the topic of mental illness. And this was for a few reasons. Um, in Japan at the time, mental illness was traditionally understood to be hereditary. Their, you know, medical practitioners were starting to understand that this wasn't true. Um, you know, there was an understanding like, oh, you know, that's not really true, but it still was holding on as a pretty strong, like... Well, that probably stems back to the Edo period where, like, you had to hold up the family unit. Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, and Kinugasa's personal interest in mental illness came from two incidents. One was a recent visit to a mental hospital uh, and just sort of seeing the conditions at uh, Japanese mental hospitals in the 1920s. And the other was a chance encounter with the Taisho Emperor. So the Emperor had multiple neurological problems, mm -hmm. um, the full extent of which are not really known even today. The story uh, for what would become Kuruta Ichipeji uh, was written by Yasunari Kawabata, mm. uh, who you mentioned earlier is one of the co-founders of Shinkankakua. Uh, born in 1899, Kawabata was orphaned at age four, uh, and all his other close relatives had died by the time he was 15. Uh, through school, he lived in a boarding house. He moved to Tokyo at age 18, and he entered the humanities faculty of the Tokyo Imperial University in 1920. Uh, he graduated in 1924, and later that year, he and several other writers started uh, Bungei Jidai. In 1968, he became the first Japanese uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 1970, his friend Yukio Mishima the highly acclaimed but controversial far-right bisexual Japanese author, committed suicide after a failed coup attempt against the government. Kawabata was haunted by nightmares of his friend for two years afterwards before gassing himself in 1972. So we talk about, you know, you, you mentioned um, the beauty of death as like a theme in his work. Yeah. Um, and his, his life sort of ended the way you might expect someone who writes like that to end. Kawabata's story outline for the film was fleshed out by Kunugasa himself, as well as writers Banko Sawada and Minoru Inuzuka. Inuzuka was a director as well as a writer, and when he passed away in 2007, he was the last surviving silent film director from the pre-sound era. Wow. He's also known for writing the first, second, third, fifth, 7th, 10th, and 24th films in the original 26 film series of Zatoichi. <laughs> That's great. I didn't realize that. I didn't put the two and two together. We, we have all of Zatoichi <laughs> movies, so... Uh, yeah, they're good. So, um, to star in the film, Kinagasa managed to get the interest of a uh, major star of stage and screen at the time, Masao Inoue who agreed to participate in the project free of charge as a show of support for Shinkankakua. Uh, and this was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, Inoue was a major star at the time, and him foregoing any kind of fee uh, was really good for, you know, this... Independent film. Yes, exactly. 
Uh, this actually ended up attracting the attention of the Shochiku Movie Studio, which then offered facilities and financial support and, you know, places to film, sets, that sort of thing. Nice. The film's cinematography is by Kohei Sugiyama, probably best known in the West for shooting the 1941 version of The 47 Ronin. His assistant cameraman on the film was a young Eiji Tsuburaya, best known as the special effects director who created Soupmation and the tokusatsu genre with his work on the original uh, Godzilla and Ultraman series. Nice. Some big names <laughs> yeah. involved here. I'm getting ex- excited. So Kuruta Ichipeji was released September 24th, 1926. It was heavily promoted in Japan, both as a melodrama and also as an independent art film. Marketing for it promoted it as kind of like the little movie that could, um, really playing up its independent beginnings and its humble status and the idea that like the director was this like outsider who, you know, was free of the standard methods of thinking of the studio system and so on, um, despite the fact that it had this studio financial backing. Um, and it was heralded as a new artistic step forward in Japanese film due to the director's creative independence. <laughs> this sort of attempt to market it both as melodrama and art film showed um, the market that Kuruta Ichipeji was most trying to capture, which was the success in Japan of foreign horror films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That's what I was thinking, too. The idea of an art film. Mm-hmm. The film garnered a lot of critical attention in Japan that at the time was unprecedented for a domestic movie. Uh, Japanese critics in the 1920s were largely of the opinion that their home cinema was inferior to Western product, that it was immature and underdeveloped, and too reliant on literary antecedents. Uh, At the time, movie theaters in Japan were divided into those that showed foreign films and those that showed domestic films. And the foreign film ones were the more prestigious, expensive theaters. Kuruta Ichipeji opened at the Shinjuku Musashinokan in Tokyo, the city's premier high-class foreign film theater. Dang! A committee of top film critics programmed what films got shown there, And when Page of Madness was programmed there, it was taken as a sign that it was seen as equal in quality to foreign productions. Uh, In fact, the um, sort of house film critic at that theater called it, quote, the first film-like film made in Japan, unquote. So this is just a major movie in the history of Japan's film industry. You could say that. Yeah. One question about the film is how was it regarded at the time? Was it a straightforward melodrama, or was it seen as an avant-garde art film? Um, It was designed to be both, much like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but the film can kind of seem incomprehensible to modern audiences. It has a reputation for having a very difficult-to-follow story and being kind of hard to understand. Okay. And... One element that sort of increases the comprehension difficulties of this movie is that it does not have intertitles. Interesting. Yeah. Was that common for a Japanese silent film? Yes. Uh, This is because Japanese silent films had a live narrator called a benshi. What? In addition to live music. 
That's actually really cool. So the Benshee uh, stood to one side of the screen and related the story to the audience, interpreting events and as well speaking for the characters. Um, the performance style was very much influenced by kabuki. Mm-hmm. And musical accompaniment for Japanese silent film was with traditional kabuki instruments. And the benshi was not amplified. So in addition to having to be very good at projecting their voice for everyone to hear them, they also had to time their remarks with the music uh, so that they were speaking in the spaces between the notes. Benshi became very famous and during Japan's silent era, they were actually considered more of a box office draw than the films they presented. Uh, so you went to certain theaters because they had certain benshi performing, not necessarily because you were seeing certain movies. This is so cool. I had no idea about this. With the birth of sound, uh, the benshis disappeared. Though, of course, there was some resistance, just as the Anagatas resisted the coming of actresses. Um, there's maybe only four or five practicing benshis uh, today in Japan who basically perform at, like, repertory screenings of classic cinema. Mm-hmm. Now, the benshi at the Shinjuku Musashinokan was Musei Tokugawa, and he was celebrated for his restrained, erudite style that appealed to intellectual film fans. So, for an art film. Yes. <laughs> uh, when the silent film era ended, he switched to radio as well as film narration, and his popularity lasted into the television era as a voice performer. Awesome. Upon release, Kuruta Ichipeji garnered a mixed reception from Japanese critics. Avant-garde critics praised the film, but mainstream ones complained that the story was incomprehensible without the benshi, and thus it was a failure of film technique. Because it wasn't able to tell its story as a film in and of itself. Correct. Because the idea was, there was this idea that, like, what they were trying to strive towards was creating a cinematic language that was not dependent on literary techniques uh, which the Benchy was considered a sort of leftover from Kabuki. I mean, that's fair. Um, I do find it interesting that that the audience of its time found it incomprehensible. So it's not like, you know, I was worried that we would find it difficult to understand because not only do we have a cultural difference, but we have a ton of time mm-hmm. between this. Yeah, um, it was it was critics who were saying that without the Benchy, you couldn't understand the story. Uh, and that they were criticizing the film for this. Um, what's sort of unclear to modern viewers is, like, what was the film really like at the time with the Benchy? Because we don't know what the Benchy would have said. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Regardless, the film achieved a level of critical attention in Japan that was very rare for domestic product. Unfortunately, this critical attention did not translate into financial success. Uh, despite its humble independent beginnings, and its star working for free, Kuruta Ichipeji cost about 20,000 yen at a time when the average domestic feature film cost 12,000 yen, uh, which put Kinugasa deeply in debt to Shochiku Studios, uh, which led to him signing a contract with that studio to basically work off his debt, making much more profitable uh, Jidaigeki films, or basically, you know, samurai action movies. Yeah. Give the people what they want, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's worth saying um, the Taisho Emperor died on December 25th, 1926, uh, so three months after this movie came out. After its initial release, A Page of Madness was thought to be lost, along with the vast majority of pre-war Japanese cinema. Over the next 45 years, it gained this kind of reputation as being this remarkable piece of avant-garde Japanese cinema, and this reputation grew among critical circles, um, partially because nobody could see the film. Uh, so you so had a it. similar, like, London After Midnight situation. Right. In 1971, Kinugasa rediscovered the film in rice cans in his basement. He commissioned a score to be written and arranged for the film to be re-released to great critical acclaim as a lost masterpiece, uh, <laughs> with critics calling it, quote, one of the most radical and challenging Japanese films ever seen, unquote. Yeah, but I, I don't know how much I can take these people at their word when it's garnered this kind of reputation. Also, the re-released version still does not include intertitles, and additionally, about a quarter of the film's length is missing. It's a total of about 25 minutes shorter than the original release. Now, Kinagasa claimed that this footage just didn't survive the 45 years spent in rice cans, which is certainly more than possible. But uh, comparing the film as it exists today to Kawabata's published screenplay has led some critics to theorize that Kinagasa purposely cut out the more narratively conventional and melodramatic scenes from the film in an effort to justify the experimental reputation that it had gained sight unseen in the intervening decades. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Got some conspiracies going on here. Yeah, so the the movie as it stands now might be, you know, more incomprehensible than it was in the 20s, partially because we don't have a Benchy to tell us what's going on, and partially because scenes have been cut out on purpose to make the movie more opaque. Possibly. 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 Yeah. We're not pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. But maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, how are we watching this anyways? So, you can find A Page of Madness on Blu-ray from Flickr Alley, which specializes in re-releasing silent cinema. Uh, the restoration is by David Shepard, uh, an award-winning American film preservationist. Uh, works he has restored that we've mentioned on the show include Cabinet of Dr. Galligari, Cat in the Canary, the 1920 version of Jekyll and Hyde, the 1923 Hunchback of Notre Dame, Nosferatu, the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, among many, many others. Um, so professionals doing this. Yeah. Job. Good. Uh, David Shepard passed away on January 31st, 2017. Um, major loss for the film preservation community. Uh, we have also linked a YouTube version of this restoration on our playlist. All right. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, experience this film alongside with us, you can go to our YouTube playlist on our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief, brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Karuta Ichipeji, or A Page of Madness from 1926, directed by Tenosuke Kinugasa. See you on the other side, everybody.
back everybody to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Kuruta Ichipeji from 1926, directed by Tenosuke Kinugasa. Sarah, what did you think of the movie? I think it was powerful. I think it was chilling and haunting. I think it was very good. What did you think? I think I would have liked to have seen it with a banshee. Yeah. I think I would have liked to have seen it with 25 minutes put back into it. Really? Um, because I kind of like it as it is? Yeah, I... So before we watched it, we read a couple plot synopses just to, like, give us something to hold on to. Yeah. Because without intertitles, without a narrator, the movie doesn't do a lot of work to help you grasp what's happening. Mm-hmm. I, I, I certainly can see where critics were coming from who talked about like the movie not being clear to understand on its own in the way that there are ways to use cinematic language to make things like clear on their own. Yes, I um, would agree. And part of that has to do with the fact that in depicting mental illness uh, among the characters, the movie shifts from like objective reality to subjective fantasy and it isn't always 100% clear like when you're in each or when you're in a flashback or when you've cut to a different scene or or what and it can be a little bit disorienting. So we looked at some plot synopses before we went in. I don't 100% know if I even agree with those plot synopses like I'm not sure whether those people were guessing as much as just I'm guessing, <laughs> or if they... I mean, one of the ones that we read was TCM, and they should not be guessing. Sure. They should know what they're talking about. Or are they going off of Kawabata's script, like, scenario, which is published, um, but also might have some differences to what was, like, ultimately filmed? Um, because certainly I think they helped, but I also didn't see everything they were talking about in the movie that I watched. Yeah, in writing out my plot synopsis, I definitely was, this is what I thought was happening. Yeah. This is my version of the synopsis. So, Kuruta Ichipeji is about a janitor working at an asylum. Begins on a dark and stormy night. (laughs) There's a torrential downpour going on outside, and that reminds this janitor of his time as a sailor and his poor treatment of his wife and family during that time in his life. His wife is actually a patient at the asylum, and he took the job as a janitor to remain close by and to care for her. During the film, we see the treatment of the patients at the asylum. Uh, We also have a sequence where a riot breaks out, And you get a feeling of the overall rather cold nature of the asylum. One day, a woman comes to visit uh, his wife, and she is surprised to find that her father is the janitor. It turns out to be his daughter. She reveals that she is engaged, and this starts the janitor's concerns that his daughter's fiancé will discover her mother's condition and call off the wedding because of the ongoing idea of mental illness being hereditary. Throughout the night, the janitor imagines a few different scenarios. The first one is winning a dowry for his daughter so she can be successful in her marriage. And another vision 
he tries and fails to break his wife out of the asylum, and he fails because he cannot care for her. Either during that same vision or a separate vision, um, he imagines his daughter marrying um, one of the patients, um, a bearded patient, and the janitor becomes frantic trying to stop the wedding procession, and his wife and daughter kind of holding him back. And this vision blurs into the prior riot scene, and the janitor sees himself actually attack and kill a doctor. The last vision he has is right when dawn is breaking, and with the sun coming out and shots of flowers, um, we see him handing out masks to the patients so that they will always be happy, and has this feeling of, hey, now you're cured, you behave normally, and he can have a happy family again. As these visions fade, we are left with the janitor carrying out his duties, mopping the floor, and the bearded patient he had imagined marrying his daughter passes him and bows to him like a son-in-law. And that's where the film ends. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw the same movie. I, I interpreted some things differently, and there was also things that I saw in the movie that, like, I didn't that weren't talked about in, like, online plot synopses or, like, that I interpreted differently. Mm. Um, so the one thing that you didn't mention because it's not important to the plot but certainly is, like, a major element of the movie when you watch it is the character of the dancer. Yes, yeah. Um, so one of the inmates at this asylum is a dancer or believes herself to be a dancer. She dances in her... Sell uh, all the time. She kind of almost is like a barometer of the atmosphere at the asylum in a way. Like her dancing gets more frantic. The patients get more agitated kind of, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and she kind of introduces us to this idea that the movie's going to be showing us the internal and external lives of these inmates um, because one of the earliest things the movie does is show us this dancer as like on stage in like a, uh, like a high class performance, performance until, and it shows us that first and then shows us her as an inmate in the asylum. And we get the idea like, oh, this is her hallucination. This is her fantasy. Um, we get fantasies from the wife as well throughout the movie and, and all these kind of things. And because of that, the fantasies that the janitor, the lead character, has strike me, you know, partially they're like these anxious fantasies about like, what can I do to fix this situation I'm in? But they also feel like he is being sort of driven mad by his situation because mm -hmm. his, his visions are the same as like visions that we see that are supposedly the visions of the inmates. The idea that the woman that he's caring for is his wife is one of the things that, like, I don't know if I would have picked up without reading something online. Yeah, the label I gave her comes from the synopses that we read before we watched. For sure. One thing that came from the synopses that we read, too, is the idea that, like, at least in one of them I read, said that she was driven insane by, like, his cruelty when they were married and he was a sailor. And, like, now he's the janitor at the asylum so he can look after her because he has this feeling of guilt. And I did not get that at all from the movie I saw. Oh, I I did. Maybe um, it's because I was looking for specific things. But there's what I took as flashbacks during the 
torrential rain of mm-hmm. him in a sort of sailor type Outfit, uniform. Yeah. And within the rain, there were moments of like seeing a woman being mistreated. Mm. I didn't see any of that at all. Oh. Um, what I saw in those same flashbacks that you're describing is I saw the wife try to kill a baby. Like, I saw this woman trying to drown a child. And the impression I got from that is that she's in this asylum because she tried to kill her daughter. And, like, that's why she's in the asylum. And he's, you know, he's there working as the janitor because he wants to be close to her and be taking care of her. Um, But I never got the sense that that was out of guilt of his own actions. Um, That didn't come across to me. Uh, you know, sometimes things were cut so short that it was like, was that a dream or was that real? Um, the daughter seems to work as a ticket taker at a train station and she seems to be getting married to like a young intellectual. Then, you know, we see him sort of entering into her cell a lot. Like he has keys to her cell. The impression I got is that like the staff at this asylum, do not know that he is related to this patient. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like maybe that wouldn't be allowed. When the daughter shows up to visit, I guess, like, she knows her mom's there. Because that's why she's there to visit. She just didn't know her dad was working there as a janitor. When she goes to visit her dad at the asylum a second time, we do see, um, like, a ring on her finger if I remember correctly. Yeah. And that's the first, like, visual hint I got of, like, okay, she's getting married. The second set of visions were really confusing for me that he has because I wasn't sure whether they were really happening or not for a very long time. He's trying to get his wife out. The first time it doesn't seem to succeed because, like, she won't leave. Like, he drags her to the front door and she just won't go with him. Um, She won't leave, like, the relative safety of the building and she ends up kind of crawling back to her cell and he comes after her. And that one, I wasn't super sure if it was real or, or imaginary. The next one was pretty clearly imaginary because when he tries to get her out, another big riot happens and like the head doctor shows up and he like beats the head doctor to death with his broom. And at that point it's like, this probably isn't really happening (laughs) And then superimposed on that scene becomes the wedding procession. And stuff like the superimposition, that's a really, that made it very clear. Like, this is a fantasy. And then, as you say, he thinks that she's getting, his daughter's getting married to one of the inmates, one of these violent male inmates. Things get kind of more hectic and frantic from there. Another thing I noted um, that you didn't mention is at one point... Uh, In the film, he loses his keys. And so at the end of the story, he also can't get back into, like, the wing that his wife's being kept in because the doctor has found those keys on the floor and taken them. So that's sort of another another layer of tragedy to the the end of the story, uh, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. Those are just a few things that I noticed that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I think it's, like, important for us to talk about themes, especially because we definitely interpreted sequences in the film differently. Mm-hmm. Like, especially the... Like, I didn't pick up or interpret at all that the flashes of a woman in the rain was her drowning a baby. I did not pick that up at all. I saw a woman who was being attacked mm. and trying to protect her baby. Mm. So, 
I'm very curious about what kind of themes you picked up, but for myself, I picked up themes of guilt, obviously, and shame about not being able to fulfill what the janitor sees as his duty, mm -hmm. um, because he, I think he both believes that he is responsible for the mother's condition and that mental illness is hereditary. So he has doomed his daughter to have a mental illness because of this, because of his treatment of his mom, of her mom. Right. So therefore, since he is at fault for the mental illness, he's at fault for the risk to the daughter's future. Yet I think he also fears that, like, his own violent nature is hereditary. And it's it really felt like a bit of a curse. And he feels... Um, and I, I definitely felt this when he's, like, trying to get the wife out of the asylum and she is resisting him every step of the way. He feels impotent and powerless mm. to actually help or solve the situation that he's brought on those he is meant to protect. Mm -hmm. um, in his interactions with the doctor, like the lead doctor, I think he both appreciates and hates the doctor for taking on what should be his patriarchal role. Sure. And I think the masks at the end are his way of showing his wish to be protector and patriarch of the patients writ all. Yeah. Um, for them to be healthy and back to quote-unquote normal, because once the people put on the masks, they stop... Whatever they were doing. Yeah, except for the dancing girl, um, which I think shows that it's a tragic and thing and won't actually work, so again, he's powerless, because even as he tries to solve with these masks, the girl is still dancing. I think the other thing is, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not subtle that the solution to what will make these mentally ill people happy in, like, his fantasy is to put, like, masks on them. Like, that is yeah. not a subtle metaphor, yeah. you know? But one thing I would like to bring up that is maybe not subtle for like a Japanese audience, but maybe for us is that he puts a mask on himself during that sequence as well. I'm not a hundred percent sure if it's a reference to something like specific. Uh, I don't know what the specific reference is, um, but I think we can probably still play it fairly safe with like the obvious surface level readings of that mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. I honestly, like I picked up a lot of the same thematic content you did. I think the, the lead, you know, Man, it would be helpful if any of these people had names. Um, <laughs> I think that the janitor feels powerless. I think that's really clear. Um, I think the fact that, you know, in getting a job at the asylum so he can be near his wife, you know, the best he can do is become a janitor, right? Like, he didn't go to fucking university for however many years to become a psychologist to help his wife. He just got a job as a janitor at the hospital she's at, right? Like, so yeah, there's this powerlessness. The head doctor like, isn't depicted as a bad guy. Like, he's just there. He's not really depicted one way or the other. Yet, watching the movie, you feel like he's the antagonist somehow. Because the movie's mostly from the janitor's point of view. And I think you're totally right in identifying that, like, his antagonism of the Doctor is because of that, like, feeling that his role as his wife's um, provider, protector, etc. has been co-opted. Right? So I, I, I totally agree with that. I really wish I could get a better handle on the thing with the bearded inmate. Because, like, I get it. His fear about 
his daughter is that like the insanity is going to be passed down and that this will doom his daughter's marriage. But like, why does he in his visions see her fiance as the insane one? Like I get that. And again, coming back to what I was saying a little earlier, like we don't have to assume that all of his like anxiety panic attack visions are rational. That's not how anxiety works. That's not how mental illness works, right? Like that's not how fear works. The things that you're afraid of are not necessarily like, oh no, but that's reasonable. Like sometimes they're just, (laughs) sometimes they're just stupid, right? So I get that, but I wish I could understand the significance of that a little bit more because it seems so significant to the ending where that bearded inmate like gives him that nod of recognition, that bow. That's why I think it has something to do with his fear about his own violent nature. Mm. Because that bearded inmate, I don't know if it's the exact same one, because there's a few bearded inmates, but we see them start the riot. Yeah, I think he's the guy who starts the riot earlier. I think he's the violent one. But, like, the only evidence I see of the janitor's violent nature is when he beats the doctor to death with his broom in one of the visions. Mostly because I didn't interpret the footage of the what we think is a flashback as being an abusive husband. Mm-hmm. I suspect the accusation that Kinugasa trimmed his own movie upon re-release to increase its avant-garde appeal is true. I would agree. Um, And the reason I suspect this is because the sequences that seem intact in the movie are the fantasy sequences that show off the most visual flair and technique. Uh, You cannot say that this movie lacks for technique. We've kind of hinted at it, but like, you know, there's moving camera, a plenty, split screen, reversed images, double exposure, speed changes, uh, reflections, um, just like uh, Kuleshov edits. Like every, every edit in this movie may as well be a Kuleshov edit, since you basically have to put the story together yourself in your head based on (laughs) the edits. Um, Basically anything that can be done with a camera and an optical printer is done in this movie. You know, there's just stuff in here that, I mean, for one thing, it's it's pretty jarring going from, like, mid-40s Hollywood filmmaking, which is probably the most, like, structured that filmmaking ever got, to this experimental 1920s Japanese silent film, right? It's a very jarring change. Yeah. But there's also stuff in this movie that feels, like, very modern um, in terms of the imagery. There's stuff here where it's like, oh, yeah, MTV will be doing this in the 80s, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> Um, I think the most effective thing the movie does is use all of this technique to bring us the inner world of the inmates Mm -hmm. uh, and and the increasing anxiety of the janitor. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I think also it, it was just very impressive how every shot was framed, both in terms of what you see in front of the camera and also having literal bars or something similar to bars in front of the lens. Yeah. It's hard to say it's to the film's detriment that I couldn't always tell what was really happening, quote-unquote, and what wasn't, because that you could argue that's effective intent, right? Because, like, oh, the movie's trying to give you a sense of what it's like to be mad, and, like, if you, you know, aren't sure of your own reality, like, that's part of that. 
So making it so that you're not sure of what the reality of what's going on in the movie like feeds into that, that's effective. But it was a problem for me sometimes that those shifts into subjective versus objective reality weren't always clearly signaled. The things that are clearly happening, that are clearly objective, also happen to be the sequences that appear to be the most truncated mm-hmm. or missing. Um, the Like any scenes that have anything to do with like the supposed plot of this movie, which is the daughter and her fiancé, seem to have the most holes. Like, there just seems to be stuff missing. And I say that in the sense of, like, having some knowledge of the way that movies are made and, like, film theory and just, you know, those kind of issues. The weird, you know, fantasy, bizarro dream sequences feel complete. There doesn't feel like there's anything missing. You know, as much as they're all bizarre and... and, and strange and frightening, you can kind of follow their arcs. Yeah, I think you'd be able to tell, even with all of the unique editing tricks that they're doing, you'd be able to tell when something's missing because of how fluid they are. Yes, exactly. They're very fluid. Whereas the stuff with, like, the daughter, you're, like, watching it going, wait, who's that? What, What just happened? How did she get over here now? And, like, the fiance's in one scene where she just is, like, at home in, like, a domestic scene, and he's just, like, reading the newspaper. There, There's no scene where, like, she confronts him or he confronts her. Like, this whole idea that the janitor is overcome with anxiety because the fiancé might find out the mom is mad. Honestly, without an internet plot summary, I don't see that. What I see is that the janitor has anxiety and is, like, super worried about everything and wants to get his wife out of there. And that also his daughter came to visit him and didn't know that he worked there. And that on a subsequent visit, he found out she was getting married. Like, that's that's what we see. And putting together meaning out of that is, is a different kind of story. Sure. You know, if there was a scene we saw where, like, the daughter brought the fiancé to the asylum and he saw the wife and the dad saw that and whatever, like, that would create something else. So this is why I feel like the idea that Kinugasa, like, cut these scenes himself holds water. Because if you had scenes that just naturally had decayed over time and, like, oh, I'm missing parts of the movie because, like, I stored it in rice cans in my basement and, like, film decays, which is true, it wouldn't be, like, so consistent what is missing, right? Like, you'd feel like there'd be more weird gaps. Yeah, I completely agree that I think things are purposely cut. However, I think it's to the film's benefit. Okay. So I will just start off with saying the film itself was never designed to be able to tell its story on its own. Mm -hmm. It was designed to have a narrator. Mm -hmm. So I think saying that the film as is, um, is difficult to follow and saying that that's a flaw totally agree but it's a flaw purposely put in like the hole to through the vent in the death star you know it was designed with a purpose right um i think the lost 25 minutes helps the film because it keeps us with the janitor rather than with the daughter in the real world Mm -hmm. um quote unquote real world um the world outside the asylum Mm -hmm. um it makes it more focused it makes it feel more personal Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, that focus 
is important when you have such ambiguous, fluid, experimental, somehow sensory-heavy, weird dream sequences. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it keeps it shorter and feels like a shorter movie when compared to another movie that this film kind of reminded me of, which is the 1928 Followed the House of Usher. Yeah, I thought we were going to get there eventually. Yeah, I, I was reminded a lot of, of Usher with this. Like, this felt like if the director of Usher had made the script of Caligari. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, 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 if instead of... After, um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You sure. know? Yeah, like, yeah, if, yeah. if uh, Epstein had made Caligari. That's kind of the feel of this movie. What's interesting is I looked at the length of Fall of the House of Usher, and it's like 65 minutes. Yeah, it's very short. And this movie's longer, but this feels more cohesive. It doesn't feel like we're retreading the same ground, which I know is a big complaint you had of Usher. And part of that, I think, is because it feels so personal. Can I make a confession? Yeah. This has nothing to do with, like, the overall quality of this movie. But another thing it has in common with Fall of the House of Usher is I had a hard time staying awake during it. No! I felt so fully engaged. Like, the same way that I do with Usher. Like, I think I enjoyed this more than Usher, full disclosure. But I just felt like this movie's trying to tell me something and just isn't saying it. So I need to pay <laughs> attention to everything it's saying. And just, like... Not on the edge of your seat where you're like, just fucking blurt it out, buddy. Like how I feel sometimes when I am hitting a, a stuttery moment with my speech. I just felt like, yes, give it to me. Keep keep giving me this, like, molasses fluid syrup. <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying about, like, you know, needing to be engaged to follow what's happening. What I mean is, I think one of the reasons I was having trouble staying awake is that the movie's imagery is so successfully dreamlike. Mm. Um, and, and when I say dreamlike, like, a lot of movies get dreamlike, thrown a bandied about as, like, a term. So my dreams, or at least the progression of my thoughts as I go from awake to asleep, are often, like, these weird association games that my brain plays without, like, conscious thought, where, like, if I were to... You know, I have these times where I'm falling asleep and my thoughts are just kind of going in the background. And then if I stop, I'll be like, wait, how did I get from A to B? That doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of how this movie is sometimes. You know, things just start happening and imagery starts getting piled on. And, you know, suddenly we're over here now and doing this. And the way that that movie was emulating the feeling of dream... I think was just lulling my brain into like those thought patterns. Like yeah, into falling asleep basically. It's really interesting. Um so so that's kind of what was happening there with huh. me. So I agree completely with what you're saying about the cuts making the movie more focused. I think you're entirely like 100% right. I also totally disagree with you. <laughs> Disagree in what way? In that it was the like that it was the right call to cut those things. Interesting. I um, love this. So, like, I think you're right. But if he was going to do that, he should have cut everything with the daughter. He should have cut this thing where we cut back and see her with the fiance, like at home, whatever. 
like her working at the train station, like you should have cut all that shit because it just that leaving the little bit in makes it seem like it's a mistake. Right. And therefore defensible. Um, it's <laughs> well, it's sort of like, you know, it's like Biggs Darklighter in a new hope. So Biggs is Luke's best friend from back home. Yeah. And in the original edit of star Wars, you see Biggs on Tatooine with Luke being like, hey, I'm shipping off for the Academy. And Luke being, gosh, I wish I could go with you. And they have this big tearful goodbye. And then later at the end of the movie, they meet again as pilots. And it's like, oh, turns out Biggs ended up with the Rebel Alliance. And they have this big hug and like, oh, I'm so excited to see you. That's great. And then they go off to the battle. And then Biggs dies in the battle at the end. When Lucas recut the movie before it came out, because the first cut of the movie that I'm referencing was Garbo, he cut out Biggs from the opening of the movie because it was slowing things down. And because of that, he also cut Biggs from the end of the movie because it no longer made sense. So you just have Biggs in the battle dying where he just seems to be a random other pilot. In the special edition of A New Hope from the 90s, they put Biggs back in the reunion scene at the end where him and Luke meet up. Now it kind of works because Biggs is still mentioned in dialogue earlier as like one of Luke's friends who's left, but they didn't put back the scene of them talking on Tatooine because it would still slow down the movie and it would also like super change the structure too much. <laughs> so you end up with this weird thing where like he's kind of in the movie and kind of not. And it's almost more confusing to have that than to just get rid of him. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about the daughter as she is now. My other thing is that means you could either cut more of her out and focus the movie more, uh, which I think would play more to what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't agree with that either. Here's my thing. As much as I admire a lot of the technical work done with this film, and I think the way it draws you into the madness of the characters is very effective, I think the emotional connection and the resonance that you would feel with the struggle and the suffering of these characters is lost without the human elements to tell us who these people are and how they relate to each other, and what the stakes of the situation are. The context for me is missing. And the more you cut that stuff out, the more context is missing. Um, I, I think I definitely see where you're coming from. And I think the more you cut out that context, the more it's like, look at these crazy people. It feels a little exploitative. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can simplify the janitor's you know, dilemma just down to my wife is crazy and in this asylum and I want to get her out because she's my wife and I want to care about her myself. Um, you can simplify it that much, but that's not really accurate to the psychology of what's happening in the story with these characters because the actual psychology is much more rooted in like these traditional Japanese social fears about family and status, right? About mm -hmm. I want my daughter to marry well and be wealthy and prosperous, and, you know, if they find out about my crazy wife, that's going to ruin that. So I need to fix this situation somehow. But I'm so powerless to fix that situation, the only place I can fix that situation is by retreating into fantasy, which is what the crazy people in the asylum do, right? Um, so therefore I'm one of them. Um, and just the stakes don't feel like they're there for me because I don't feel that connection between these people. 
And if that was more clearly elucidated or that context was put back in, you know, those extra 25 minutes so I can understand, like, what is he afraid of? Because, like, so Masao Inoue gives a really wonderful performance. Yes. Um, he is this sad, eternally worried-looking old man. Yoshi Nakagawa is, I think, the true MVP as the wife. Um, she really gets to, like, run the gamut portraying her character's insanity. She gets to kind of do, like, a little bit of everything in yeah. that part. But in the movie as it stands now, the janitor is afraid of something. And there is horror in this movie. But I don't know of what. <laughs> because without, like, if I had that context back and that human element, even if Kinugasa felt that those things were, like, melodramatic and therefore like cheesy and corny and like pulled down his avant-garde like experimental street cred um without those melodramatic without those melodramatic elements we go from having like a very specific relatable human emotional fear and a horror in this movie that's like rooted in human flaws and foibles to basically a movie where the horror is the horror of madness, and the fear is the fear of insanity. Just very, like, base-level things. I, I agree with where you're coming from. I disagree with your conclusion. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because, like, that's I what think... we keep saying back and forth. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's great. Because I think what's really neat with this film and what I think kind of amazes me is how modern it feels mm. with how it allows us to both feel and identify with the janitor while also condemning him. Okay, yeah. See, the, my thing is I don't get that second part. I think it's because of how he interpreted the like flashback scenes differently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think like especially with how the focus of, like, having these 25 minutes taken out um, just keeps us on the janitor. It's very personal, and it feels, again, to kind of pull back another movie, it reminded me of how we're supposed to feel about David Holm in Phantom Carriage, mm. which is 1921, mm. so kind of around the same time. Mm -hmm. And, like, David Holm, like... The title of that episode is David Holm is a jerk, because that's what you're supposed to get from him, and then he repents at the end. In this, you're, like, you feel so sorry for the dude, just like, man, you're so powerless, and you kind of pity him. Yeah, pity is the most strong emotion for that character that I got. And yet, the janitor kind of put himself in this situation, and he, mm. he cursed his wife's life, he cursed his daughter's life, or at least his anxieties that he has cursed his daughter's life. We definitely see he's cursed his wife. Yeah, we don't actually see these problems that he is supposedly worried about according to the plot synopses we wrote, read. We don't see those problems, like, in the movie. Like, the few scenes we see of the daughter and her fiancé and or husband, they seem fine. Yeah, <laughs> which I think, like, as someone who struggles with a lot of anxiety with, like, the situation is probably fine, but you're, like, not pretty sure they hate me. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's all the a things... very, like, I get it. I get it, janitor. Yeah, all the things you're worried about, it's fine. Which is also why I feel like 
this is neither here nor there, but, like, I don't think he's suffering from, like, capital M madness mm. in the way that Caligari is definitely dealing with capital M madness. Or that, M like, madness. his wife is definitely dealing with capital M madness. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but rather he has guilt and shame and regret of his own actions and his own powerlessness to even fix what his actions have wrought. Yeah, and, and he's got capital A anxiety. Or deaths. So, uh, is this movie horror? Yes. Okay, because the thing I got stuck on is, is a movie horror just because it feels like a nightmare? Like, is a movie horror just because it might give you nightmares? <laughs> um, because, like, like I was saying earlier, I think there is horror in the movie, and I think there is fear in the movie, but I'm not sure of what. What is the fear in this movie? Is it just a fear of insanity? What's the horror in this movie? Is it just the horror of, like, look at the crazy people, like, no. going to, you know, a, a, a haunted house and being like, look at the displays, you know? No, I think it's a similar horror to what we have in Phantom Carriage, where it's like, look, look how much you're fucking up. <laughs> Only, like, with David Holm, like I said, like, it's like, dude, you are so shitty, Look at what all of your shittiness has done. You're so shitty. You're going to go to hell or ride the phantom carriage upon eternity because you're so shitty. Get your shit together. Get it all into a backpack. Get it all into the box. And just get your shit together. Whereas this movie's like, dude, you were shitty? And now you have anxiety about it? But you kind of deserve it because you're shitty. Like... The horror is of, like, yourself a little bit. I, see, because I didn't get the idea that the janitor is shitty, I got that he was pitiful. Yeah. But I didn't get him being shitty, because I didn't see what you saw in the flashback scenes. If anything, the horror I got out of this movie, or the fear, or whatever, is just, like, that things are out of your control. Mm-hmm. That, like, you've gone from... Like, I guess a bit of that patriarch thing that you were talking about earlier, that strikes pretty true to me. Like, the idea that, you know, if you're the father slash husband in, like, a family unit, right? Like, in traditional patriarchal family units, that puts you in control, right? My wife, my child, I have a job, I provide for them, you know, things are under my control. And this wife is now out of your control. She's a patient at this asylum. You are not her keeper anymore. Uh, these doctors are. And so he's trying to, like, maintain some semblance of control by, like, sneaking into her cell and giving her food or whatever the fuck. And then it's like, your daughter's getting married. So even without all the fears of, you know, what if madness, da-da-da, that still takes her out of your control. That's one other thing. Like, she's out of your life now, too. That doesn't matter. Um, and she's probably never going to come back because mom's crazy and you're a weird, weird old man. And they're clearly estranged. Yes, because she didn't even know he was working there. Yeah. Right? Like, like she knows her mom is at this asylum, but she didn't know her dad worked there. That is some estrangement for sure. So, you know, things are out of his control and that's exemplified by like things like the riot 
at the asylum that occurs that he can't do anything about. The fantasies he has where... He takes back control by killing the patriarchal figure of the doctor. Right, but even in his fantasies, like, you know, he wins a bunch of money. That's not your control, dude. That's happenstance. Yeah, it's total luck. It's from a, a fortune cookie thing. Yeah, or like, you know, the fantasy about, like, you know, he can't control who his daughter marries, right? So his daughter's actually marrying some rich intellectual, but, like, his fear is that she's going to marry someone who's crazy because he can't control that, right? So if that was, for me, the fear in the movie is that, that loss of, of control uh, and feeling like the world's kind of spiraling out of control and out of your ability to, like, manage. And the only thing he can do to, like, manage it is, like, give people masks, which is, like, such an on-the-nose thing to say basically, like, covering up your problems, right, instead yeah. of dealing with them, which is, like, such a really common um, way of dealing with mental illness, too, right? Like, there are so many people in the world where, like, that's the first thing you learn if you have a mental illness is how to, like, craft a mask so that everyone around you thinks you're okay because you don't want to be, like, disruptive. And, you know, the people who end up in asylums are the people who like, couldn't craft that mask well enough, or their mask broke down, basically. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty on the nose, I think, there. Yeah. So yes, I think it's a horror movie. Okay. As it stands, I think the lack of the overt plot, like the lack of telling you what's going on, means that, and I think this really came out in our discussion, the power of A Page of Madness depends less on what it's telling you and more on what you're bringing to it. Mm, um, yeah. It functions almost like a psych test of its own in that what you think about this movie says more about you than what it says about the movie. Are you saying the reason I picked up on the janitor's anxiety is because my own? That's... I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's interesting that with the movie as it stands, you know, this is a movie about what you bring to it, I guess, because sure. we took such different things from it. And that has to do with, like, I think how you see yourself reflected in this movie. Um, I could see someone who didn't who wouldn't get anything out of this movie because they don't have any of these fears or anxieties present in the movie to be reflected back to themselves, right? It's kind of interesting that, like, we see a lot of interesting lighting and editing effects and framing and things like that in the movie, um, but we also see a lot of use of what I can only describe as funhouse mirrors. Yes. You know, curvy mirrors where things are distorted. And this movie is kind of a funhouse mirror to ourselves. Uh. Ah. Do you want to move on to ranking? For sure. So, Sarah, it feels like we both liked this movie, but also that we came away with, like, very different opinions on it, yet we agreed about most of the things we saw in the movie. Like, <laughs> like it feels like our discussion was like, you know, I looked at an orange, and I said, this is round, and it's bumpy, and it's sweet. And you said, yes, this is round, and it's bumpy, and it's sweet. 
And then, you know, you said, I hate it. And I said, I love, love it. You know, like, so, um, <laughs> I really, I hate it. Yeah. I'm really curious to see like where our ranges ended up on this one. Uh, where were you looking for Kruta Ichipeji? Oh, this, I, I really wish we had seen this movie back when we were in the twenties, Ben. <laughs> it would have made this so much easier, but as it stands, um, first I looked at where Fall of the House of Usher is because of yeah. How much reminded me of that. Mm. Um, Usher is at 32, and I felt like this movie deserves to go above that and a ton of movies that are above it. <laughs> so um, so then I was like, well, how does this compare to Caligari? Mm. Because I think that they're pretty comparable. Yeah, Caligari fair. is at 15, and I remember how I love German Expressionism. And I love the look of Caligari, but it's very artificial, mm-hmm. and that puts it at arm's length. This sure. movie feels so personal. You're right fucking there. You're in their heads. That's how personal it is, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's no more or less artificial than Caligari, because, like... It's a film? Well, and also, like, it's very full of technique, as we said. Like, it's not trying to be naturalistic. It's Shinken Kankakua. Um... But, like, also there's, like, drawn-on lightning bolts that are made out of onomatopoeia. Um, That's true. That was a great moment. But, Um, yes, it's not at arm's length like Caligari is. Even just down to the framing. Here we get shots of people's faces. Yeah. In Caligari, it's fairly um, proscenium. So, looking above Caligari. (laughs) So, oh, this movie was so hard, Ben. Um, oh, I don't, Yeah. I don't even know how to broach this, but mm-hmm. I'll just dive in. Okay. Um, similar to Dracula's faults of being proscenium, being like a film that's just shot on stage, I was like, this should go above Dracula. Mm. So my floor is above or below Bride of Frankenstein. <sighs> I know, you're giving me this look. Um, my ceiling is number four with Phantom Carriage. Because as much as, like, I think they're similar in the way of, like, hey, you're a shitty dude, look at how shitty you are. I think Phantom Carriage does it in a way that's so dreary and bone-breaking that I think, you know, that I think Karuta Ichipeji could go below Sharkarlin, Phantom Carriage. Yeah, I mean, like, you never feel pity for David Holm, because Phantom Carriage is just all about that. There's no ambiguity. Yeah. Going back to the point I made earlier about this film, kind of as we're watching it, it's almost half of the story that Tenosuke Kinugasa meant for us to experience because we don't have a narrator. Whereas Sharkarlan, Phantom Carriage, it's of, in and of itself a story. So that's that. So that's why Phantom Carriage would go above. Now the reason why I'm thinking maybe even below Bride of Frankenstein is Bride is a whole thing in and of itself. It's not half of the story. Reasons I just said. So Ben, that's my range. See, I thought, I thought you were saying that like your floor was House of Usher, your ceiling was was Dracula, and then you just sort of kept going there. 
and now we have a problem. Okay, well, what's your range? So, my range is below yours. I, I did not get up into top ten stratosphere territory here. Okay. And I, I feel like part of that is because, like, as I said, um, I really felt the loss of the Benchy, and I really felt the loss of the 25 minutes, and I really wanted this movie to engage me more than it did. It really engaged you. Um, it did not engage me emotionally. It engaged me intellectually. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get pulled into it emotionally like I wanted to. So my range is below yours. Uh, I started with a film that felt very similar to me. Um, and, and I agree with you that it's probably more similar to Usher, but this is a movie I like better than Usher. I started looking around the range of Vampire at number 21, and I decided that I liked Vampire better. And the reason why was because I understand what's happening in Vampire, and I can follow what's going on, and I get it. And this movie, I couldn't really, unless I read a Wikipedia page first, and even then, it didn't really help as much as I wanted it to, and I hold that against this movie. To be fair, that's my experience of Vampire, but go on. So, I don't like this as much as Vampire. So immediately below Vampire is the man who changed his mind, which this is probably definitely better than. Yes. And below that is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941, which again, this is probably definitely better than. But below that is Freaks, which is... We even re-ranked Freaks, and its ranking placement is still a problem. But... I wanted to give the possibility that Freaks was better than this, just because Freaks, even though it also has editing issues, I feel is more cohesive than this movie in one sense, which is when I walk out of Freaks, I know what Todd Browning was trying to tell me. Now, he he might not be telling it as well as he wanted to, but I know what he was trying to tell me, and I'm not entirely sure what Tenosuke Kinagasa is trying to tell me here. So that was my range, was 21 to 25, um, but quite honestly, my heart of hearts felt that the place for this was below Vampire, above The Man Who Changed His Mind. Now that's quite a bit lower than where you were looking. Oh, Ben. So we're going to have to work out some sort of compromise here. Okay, well, Caligari's in the middle of this. Yes. What's your take on Caligari versus Page of Madness? So I a thousand percent agree with you about the stuff about personal versus at arm's length. Totally, you're, you're right. <sighs> Here's my thing. I think if we were ranking a list of best to worst films about mental illness of all time, I think A Page of Madness goes above Caligari. Because A Page of Madness is like, I think a bit more of a human look at it. And Caligari, it's like a, a fun plot twist. <laughs> like, it's a clever, like, oh, but what if he was crazy? I, I'm in a high school English class. But we're not doing that. We're looking at best to worst horror films of all time. And, I mean, we got to the point, like, I agree with you. I agree with you about the horror in this movie. But I also think Caligari is a better horror film. I think Caligari is scarier. I think Caligari is more iconic in, like, the realm of horror cinema. Like, I think as a horror movie... Caligari is kind of a bit of a monument, and I don't think this movie manages to break past it 
because there isn't really anything in this movie that struck me in the horror department as effectively as things struck me in Caligari in that department. There are other things this movie's doing better, I will admit. But as a horror movie, I don't think it's as good as Caligari. There are going to be Japanese movies that are going to be better than Caligari. The first time we get some Japanese movie that like has like a lady ghost with long black hair, like, okay, cool, cool, you win. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's my feeling. And right below Caligari, we've got Nosferatu, and honestly, my feelings are the same in regards to Nosferatu, which is that like Nosferatu's the better horror movie. Below Nosferatu, we got Mad Love. This is probably better than Mad Love. That's so that's where I'm feeling as a compromise spot is below Nosferatu, above Mad Love, because at the end of the day, like Mad Love it has a lot of fun, good elements. Um we love Peter Laurie. We love Colin Clive. You know, it's got I forgot Colin Clive is in that. <laughs> I just remember Peter Laurie. We love Carl Freund. Mm-hmm. We love the weirdo sets in that movie and the look of it. I love that bird. Right, that fucking Citizen Kane-ass bird. But at the end of the day, Mad Love is also, like, the same, like, the villain's a mad scientist who's in love with this guy's wife plot that we saw, like, eight times in a row in the mid-30s. And Kurute Ichipeji is, like, nothing else on the list. So that's where I'm feeling. Uh, okay. I, yeah... I see that I'm not going to get you above Caligari. I I see where you're coming from with your reasoning. I disagree, but that's just, that's the theme of this episode. Um, but I I can see when a battle is lost. So sure, let's let's put it at seventeen then. Okay, I feel good about that. That's higher than I wanted to go. That's above Vampire, which I just. Putting things above Vampire is my continual compromise about everything on this list. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm really sorry. I just, I can't, this is not top ten material for me. But oh, I, think... I, I, so, like, this is why I wish that we had seen this in, when we were in 1926. Mm. Because then we wouldn't have, you know, Wolfman, Fairman Maria, right. Murders in the Zoo, we wouldn't even have fucking Dracula up in here, you know? Sure. Like, it would have been a bit easier, but there's, like, more competition here. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we're fine. I will say, we have 98 ranked films on the list as of this movie, so top 20 is still pretty good. Yes. All right, so entering the list at number 17, Kuruta Ichipeji from 1926, directed by Tenosuke Kinugasa. And also just want to shout out one last time, thank you, listener Laura, for sending us a note at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com to let us know that we had missed this film. I really, truly enjoyed seeing this. Um, It was a real treat, even with it being so jarring from 40s movies. Um, So thank you again. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find links to the other episodes that we've talked about today. And you can also find an appeals box where you can channel your inner Laura and let us know if we've missed any films. You can also send in appeals to uh, challenge this or any other ranking. 
or to send in any kind of concerns, questions, or thoughts of any kind. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help support the show by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcast service that you listen to us on. Um, those sorts of things help other people find the show and help the show get promoted through the use of the Internet's favorite way to ruin everything, algorithms. <laughs> Another way you can help support the show is by telling a friend about us, uh, by telling people about us on social media or in real life. Uh, I know people are always looking for podcast suggestions. That seems to be my experience anyway. <laughs> you can also help the show out by being like jolly old St. Nick and heading to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At that level, you get thanked on the show. The next level up is $5 a month, where you get weekly bonus audio. The next level above that, $10 a month, you get access to exclusive horror short fiction uh, written by me that doesn't show up anywhere else. We're hoping to hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month one day, which will enable us to do a special bonus episode of Scream Scene every month covering horror-adjacent films, movies that aren't necessarily horror but have that horror-adjacent kind of feel. (laughs) The Adams Family. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I would love that. Is that the one where, like, they meet the Wolfman, too? Yeah, they're all in it. Yeah, awesome. I mean, like, there's only one in the title, Ben. Like, I gotta ask these questions. For sure. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So, Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are heading back to 1943 to France. Oh, Nazi-occupied France for La Main du Diable The Hands of the Devil or, as it's known in its English title, Carnival of Sinners. (laughs) It's a French horror film directed by Maurice Tourneur, father of Cat People director Jacques Tourneur. Interesting. I'm looking forward to this. Carnival of Sinners. Mm-hmm. Or The Hands of the Devil. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Maybe someone gets their hands cut off and then they get the devil's hands on them. <laughs> we'll have to find out. <laughs> we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.